Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 3. I'm your host, Casey Tigret. I'm an author, a pastor, and a spiritual director. Much of our, our growing up years and my growing up years is about accumulating things, whether it's experiences or education or professional uh, stuff that we can put on our resumes. A lot of our early life is spent building up to something and gaining and filling ourselves with things. But as I've crossed the threshold of 40, what I'm learning now is the accumulation journey is not nearly as good as the journey of letting go of some things. The ability to release things that I thought were the most important thing in the world has been such a life-giving and in hopeful practice, even though it's been painful at times. And so there is a sense that the way of letting go is actually the way of becoming. It's the way forward. Instead of accumulating to let go of some things like the need to be seen a certain way by other people, to let go of those kind of things is to find simplicity and contentment and hope. And I think that sentiment would be. Uh, would be echoed, and it is echoed in this episode, by my guest today, Marlena Graves. In her book, The Way Up is Down, she talks about the formation and justice journey that takes place when we learn that to empty ourselves is actually the way to find ourselves, because it's the way that Jesus modeled in his own life. And so I hope this conversation is helpful for you. I hope that you gain some insight into how to let go in order to move forward. Here's my conversation with my guest today, Marlena Graves. Marlena, thank you so much for taking time this morning. It is a pleasure to talk with you. Pleasure to be here with you too, Casey. Um, So let's start with the question that everybody's waiting for, which is about wisdom. Um, For you, and we're going to get into the parts of your story that I think probably contribute to this, if you had to define the word wisdom, where does that begin for you? Where does that journey of defining that word start for you? Well, in my life, I've been formed by scripture with a scriptural imagination, but I do think wisdom um, is putting theoretical wisdom, you know, the ideas we talk about into practice. So, I mean, we could talk about the fruit of the spirit, but it's a different thing to live it out. I think that's where wisdom is putting uh, the ideas and the teachings um, of Jesus. But of course, we know there's wisdom, you know, universal wisdom, all truth is God's truth, but putting those things into practice. Uh, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. I don't think wise people are people that can just theorize well and uh, pontificate about ideas. I think those are the people that put into practice. Pontification not helpful. (laughs) You used a phrase, uh, scriptural imagination. Talk a little bit about that. What does that mean for you? Well, I came to that term by listening to uh, seminary professors and people like Richard Hayes. I've heard Harawas say it. and um, But I just think it's part of um, being immersed in scripture. When I was a young girl, I grew up poor and I was isolated, geographically isolated from my friends because we lived in the largest, I mean, I was born in Puerto Rico, but then not long after, a couple years after we moved to um, California and then Pennsylvania, where my dad was from, the northern tip of Appalachia. And we lived in the biggest geographical school district in the state, meaning, you know, they had the widest many the most many miles that the buses had to go for from point to point um i found out that later but anyways back then there was long distance we didn't have cell phones and everyone lived long distance from me because i lived on the outskirts of the school district almost in another one and so um you know when i was done helping my dad uh split wood and chop wood with my siblings so he had gas to go to work and so we could buy food um i did not like the droning of the television in my house all the time. Um, at different times in my life, my abuelita, my mom's mom, uh, lived with us or across the street from us. And I think my mom especially loved just to have the TV in the background, not to be lonely. 
for me, it was like a uh, nail scraping on a chalkboard. I just, it was noise. I just, for no reason. And I didn't sit watching TV all day. And so I would get out into nature uh, because we lived in a rural area. So the woods, streams, you know, forests. And when I was done with whatever chores I had to do or homework, I, sometimes I'd read uh, scripture for two to four hours a day from the ages of 10 to 14. And I'd see my abuela doing that. Uh, she only had a third grade education because her mom died in childbirth when she was eight years old, I think, having one of her siblings in Puerto Rico. And so she had to go to work with the rest of the family to support the family. So she uh, ended up being an entrepreneur with a food truck and uh, having her own little general store in New York City, Puerto Rico. Pero, I'm sorry, but um, sorry, go to the my Spanish there. Um, no, it's great. Um, she she could not read, but she would read her Bible every single day. Um, and I witnessed this, uh, the Good News Bible with the little illustrations in it. And uh, and I thought if Abuela could read her Bible and she thinks it that important, then I have to, I mean, not I have to, I want to do the same because I loved and admired her so much. And so I read scripture like I said, from two, for two to four hours a day for so many years, I didn't know at the time that it was forming me, but that's the lens through which I see the world. And I feel like everything's connected, um, you know? And so um, that's, I think now I have the term scriptural imagination, but I didn't know that's what was being formed in me. Sure. A way of conceiving of the world through the lens of the Bible, but also bringing the lens of, I, I, so I grew up in West Virginia. Mm. So I, I'm thinking of you moving from you know, over time from Puerto Rico to Pennsylvania. That's a mass, especially Appalachian part mm -hmm. of Pennsylvania, not the Philly side, mm -hmm. but the other side. That's a massive cultural transition, I would think. What? How did that? How did you? How did you make that transition? What was the impact of moving from? you know, starting in Puerto Rico and then ending up in Ap the Appalachian part of the United States, which has its own, you know, cultural mores and languages and customs. And yeah, I, I don't, I think I can reflect on it. You know, as growing up, I didn't know it was just the water I swam in, but now I realize sure. why I always felt different and, um, um, and why, when we, you know, would take the census, we were like the only Hispanic people, you know, there were maybe one or two African Americans in my school and there were no Latino, Latino, like my family were the only ones. Um, and I have an older brother who's much darker than I am. And he, he, fa he faces a lot more than I do because I'm white passing. Um, but, um, you know, I just, even now my older brother still lives in that area half of my family still lives in that area and there's a lot of beauty to it i don't want to denigrate uh the beauty and, and the goodness there i had a church that loved me and showed me how to follow jesus and treated me so well a country church and for that i give praise but um i guess it doesn't matter where you are actually i'm gonna back that up but you know um my brother like people say hey pedro his name is not pedro his name is marco but like at work they would just call him pedro and just insult him and have stuff happen, you know, just slurs to him. Uh, um, just that's how people are, but I don't want to say it's just there. It's everywhere. Sure. So I think though, I guess the growing up there, the effect is, I mean, I learned it was isolating for me, but it also allowed me to be close to God. It was like a wilderness. I think I talk about that in my other book or like a monastic cell. And it allowed me to, again, these are languages I heard, but cultivate solitude and silence as a way of being. Uh, maybe I'm also just bent that way and just spend, you know, 18 years um, before I went to college, or not 18, I'm sorry, it wasn't 18, but like uh, 15 years, uh, 13, 13 to 15 years, I'm losing my thing here, but a significant amount of time, more than a decade. Um, with God in nature and isolating, I guess it was a crucible for formation. Yeah. Such a non, I, talking with people a lot about non-dual thinking, it, there is no way that I would ever, and I don't think you would, ever want that wilderness 
to be true, you know, to face that being forced to, to sort of turn in because you don't feel like you fit. And at the same time, there's a beauty that came out of it. It's the whole crucifixion resurrection metaphor, like until there is death, new life can't come, uh, can't come to be. Mm-hmm. As you, how much, how much of that do you feel like is your unique experience? And how much of that is also just the bigger experience of anyone from a, a, a different race or culture who enters into a predominantly white body centric culture like the United States? Yeah, I really can't speak for everyone. Um, I, I, I think I have to reflect more on that, but I do think uh, I've seen um, uh, Professor uh, Robert Chow Romero, Romero just wrote a book, Brown Church, and he talked, I was just started, it just came out like last week. And he talked about how often Latino, Latino people feel like we're on the borderlands. And I even put that in my um, bio. I feel like I'm on the borderlands of evangelicalism, never having read his work. So I, I know that other people feel the same way um, because it's like uh, we care about following Christ closely, but we care about racism and immigration and all those things. And they're not, none of it's separated. And so I guess to answer your question, I do think that being um, either evangelical or evangelical adjacent, um, which I would say I am, is that, uh, especially the culture, I mean, is that we don't see those separations and we feel like it's a uh, pseudo separation that many people make between um, justice and righteousness, which are the same words. So maybe that's how I feel left out. And, you know, I've, you know, people might call me liberal in a derisive way or, you know, dismiss me because of that. But I think it's biblical. Yeah. You said uh, there's a term I think is really important. I think people will will resonate with this. You said the term evangelical adjacent. Mm-hmm. Can you give some give some meat to that? What does that mean? Well, my case, I uh, I did not grow up in the evangelical culture um, in my country church. You know, the Bible they preach the Bible, but they never talked about um, women's roles or. Um, at least at that time, you know, the mid to late 80s, well, late 80s, early 90s, um, mm. they did not talk about uh, women's role in the church. Uh, I, w- I mean, in my church, no one ever put us down. Uh, you know, they really surrounded us and were very hospitable. Our little country church, Chapmanville Community Church. And um, when I, my pastor's daughter, it was a couple years older than me and we're really good friends. I was really close to the pastor, his wife and family. And she went to a Christian college. And I, when I was deciding where to go to college, I basically had a full ride to Penn state main campus, which I found out later that you don't usually get to go straight to the main campus. You have to go to like a satellite school. Um, I had that choice. I only applied to one school and I applied to this Christian school, um, Cedarville University. And the only reason why I applied there is because my pastor's daughter went there and I wanted to be mentored and formed by Christians. And I didn't have any knowledge of uh, the, the culture or um, the denominational distinctives. I just thought Christian school, not Christian school. The closest one to me was Grove City School. I don't know why I didn't apply to Grove yeah. City. I, I mean, I don't know why I didn't think of it. I think I just went where my pastor's daughter went. I'm like, if it's good enough for her, it's good enough for me. Um, and so that I, I, I felt like I was miseducated um, in several ways. I, had, I met the most beautiful people there, the most Christ-like people there, and I also encountered monstrosities of the faith, um, which I would say is like maybe the fundamentalism and stuff. And I'm like, what is this? Like, mm. I, I don't know this, like, uh, like it seemed taken for granted and unspoken rules that I was not aware of. And that's where I realized how poor I grew up. Um, but, uh, and started to realize how poor I was. But I think when I say evangelical adjacent is like, I'm talking about the culture, that culture, mm. um, where, 
you know, there's all these rules that I'm not privy to. And it's like, you know, any kind of culture has its music, food, language. And so like, if I say X, then that's a signal to someone that I'm this kind of person, but that's not what I'm signaling. You know, like if I want to, uh, you know, um, if I use the word, you know, anti-abortion, okay, then I'm in this group, but then I use the word justice and I'm in this group. I use both words, you know, or, or pro-life from womb to the tomb. I always have used that. Now you see it more in the culture, but it hasn't been. And so people have a way of weeding out those they don't want the people that don't use that language and those words. And so that's why I would say I'm adjacent because I feel like I've visited evangelicalism and I've worked in the spaces. Um, but I, I don't feel that that is my origin and the way the word evangelical is used. Cause when I use evangelical, I think of the historic evangelicalism, Christo, Jesus is central, everything in and through him, but that's not what other people mean. Um, it's almost married to a political stance. Um, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. That sounds way more like American politics mm-hmm. than it does a 2000 year old faith that began in the in the middle east Mm -hmm. and there is that and and i think people listening who are will probably ref you know recognize that that moment that they said they were reading you know book x oh i've been reading this book and they watched people's shocked expression because they had stepped outside of the boundaries of the group and had grabbed one of those you know, liberal people like, you know, Rob Bell or Brian McLaren, or they dread something like that. And they were actually finding resonance there. And that goes back to what you said about all truth being God's truth. Um, there are these moments of, of brilliance and beauty that if you're just confined to the boundaries of the culture, you may miss out on um, wisdom and insight too. Yeah. And I, I want to be careful too. When I talk, I mean, there was like the, the emphasis on scripture too, which I resonated with. Um, and Jesus, but I don't see that it was all worked out in that culture. You know, we all need each other, right? We all have something to bring to the table. Like my Chapmanville community church out in the country in rural Western Pennsylvania, Northern tip of Appalachia, they have stuff to bring. You have something to bring. The listeners have something to bring, but, um, when it's all about who's out, you know, drawing that tight circle, there's only a few people in, I'm like, Jesus wasn't that way. His own disciples, you know, there were Essenes, like more monastic people. There were zealots Mm -hmm. among the 12. The Galileans were considered the country bumpkins with country accent. I'm not insulting anyone from the country, but you know what I mean? No, sure. You know, you hear people say, oh, they have a Galilean accent, you know, um, the girl to Peter at uh, when Jesus's trial. And so I think, look at Jesus's own disciples had all their, in that microcosm, of uh, the 12 disciples and the ones around them, they had all sorts of different political views, you know, Judas, you know, what's Rome going to do? How's the kingdom going to come? And somehow they were able to work together for three years. But, but what I'm seeing and what you've seen, and I'm sure the listeners have seen is like, it's just such a tight circle. Like you said, you can't even mention reading a book by a certain person or you're out. And I'm like, that's not how Jesus is. My African American brothers and sisters say, um, you know, you know, eat the meat, spit out the bones, you know, take what is good from other people. And I'm not saying anything about those you've mentioned. Um, take the goodness from other people and be willing to go with it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like if just owning my whiteness here a little bit, I feel like black and Latina or Hispanic and Latina cultures are so much better at the we're in this together concept. I think the community idea, there's so much, you know, strict individualism going on with, uh, you know, white folks and white Christians. Um, But I feel like there's a community aspect and there's a part of your book that I really loved for that reason. Um, But I want to, before we get into some of the, the content from your book, you talked about we're, you know, the idea of we're in this thing together. And right now we're we're all as a country reeling from a pandemic and there's been a lot of, I do love all the car commercials that say we're all in this together. So buy a car, which just is fascinating to me. Like, yeah, that's the first thing you think when you think (laughs) we're all in this together. 
but also the cultural moment we're in where we're grieving Breonna Taylor, Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and, you know, the again, being shown something that's always been true. How do you, how do you as a Hispanic Latina woman enter into this moment where there's so much suffering of black uh, Americans that's been raised to the uh, raised once again to the public viewpoint. How do you enter into that with your spirit, with your with your faith, with this evangelical adjacent position that you're in? How do you enter into that moment? Well, I just think we're all, you know, what is it, MLK? We're all, our destinies are inextricably tied tied together. Uh, you know, and um, I believe it's Jeremiah 29. Someone could correct me. Is it 29, seven, you know, my welfare and your welfare tied together, pray for the welfare of the city. But mm. the way I enter into it, these are my brothers and sisters. I mean, um, just up until a few months ago, until February, I was working with uh, primary, primarily um, Latino and African-American people in the city of Toledo. Uh, and so I, I don't see a distance between them and me. Um, I don't see a distance between a white brother or sister who's suffering. You know, I might not understand it, but what I'm saying is the, it's what you mentioned earlier, the communal, this is my family. Um, I don't think they're less than because of their culture or the color of their skin, you know? I mean, I mean, there's a lot of racism where people assume that people uh, use cultural background or brown, brown or black skin or are less intelligent or whatever. Um, and that is not the case. And you would know that if you spent time with people, um, uh, some of the most beautiful, intelligent, uh, resilient people I've met. And I've talked to people coming up from the border every day or every Monday night for months, not anymore because we've kicked them out of the country. But um, I would speak to asylum seekers and translate for them coming from Dallas, Texas, all the way up to Toledo, Ohio, or going up to Michigan or to New York City and Trenton, New Jersey. And so this is a continuation of what has been going on. It's not hard to enter in. Just like Jesus, um, he was among the people. And if you're among the people, you see things and you hear things firsthand. And so I, I grieve, I mourn. I lament, but I also want it to turn into action and not just more information, you know, like action about changing our churches and our systems. Um, and so I guess that's how I kind of come into it. I come alongside, I think, and, and I, like Mary, I sit at the feet of these people and I listen to what they have to say and what we, we need to do. In all of this, I hear the themes. Uh, your recent book, "The Way Up Is Down." Mm -hmm. I mean, the the title is so potent, and I, uh, from my posture and perspective, I hear Henry Nowen. Mm -hmm. um, I hear you know downward mobility. I hear those that language, uh, losing ourselves to find ourselves. Coming alongside of people requires us to lose something. Um, and it sounds like that's a life that you've led either by default or by you've, you've learned the wisdom of it, or you've been forced to do it just by circumstances. What is it that prompted you to write on this? And, and how did you, how did you experience that emptying again as a process of, of going through writing this book? Yeah. You know, before the 2016 election, I was already disgusted with, um, evangelical uh, church and national politics because remember it's really hard to separate them um and but what what i see disgusted is that i see people that were because i used to listen to i didn't mention this earlier but i used to listen to the christian radio a lot to listen to preachers on the radio because that's all i could get you know where we were um besides the tv and I heard how much character matters and, you know, think what's important. 
And then I'm like, you're doing an about face. Everything I've heard you say, I mean, I used to listen to all these people faithfully that care matters, that your heart information matters. And then I would see and hear, you know, pastors, I, I like you, Casey, I do teach uh, some in the seminary, uh, uh, some courses, uh, adjunct courses, and um, or I'd read about because I'm associated with Christian media. Sometimes I'd hear before a story breaks out because I know some of the people involved in it um, uh, or reporting on it. I hear a little bit of information about, um, you know, something that was going to break soon, maybe that, you know, that day earlier, you know, saying we have something that's happening. Um, and I was like, here you have huge churches, lots of money and wealth, but no integrity, no, hmm. or you sold your soul to, um, sidle up to power. You know, and I know it's hard. Like I know, and I've talked to pastors and I've worked in churches. If a tither says to you, some of them might tithe 50 to $100,000 a year. I don't like what you're saying. You better knock it off or I'm taking my ties elsewhere. Um, I know that's hard because that means positions. Like you have to cut positions. Maybe if you have a bigger church, yeah. um, you're going to lose something, but I, I feel like I saw so many people selling their souls for power and influence and even Christian um, people in the writers, maybe, you know, writers or um, speakers or pastors or leaders. And I'm like, this is not the way of Jesus. And when I mm -hmm. thought of the way of Jesus, I'm like, how would Jesus live right now in this moment? Not that I am a sage on the stage, but I'm like, what are we missing? And everything in my book is always a sermon to myself. So I, I'm not putting myself above other people because I know oh, geez, there's dragons and well, as St. Macario says, angels and demons, dragons, and you know, all sorts of things in our heart and they're in my heart too. But so I thought in my book, how would Jesus now? And how do, did Jesus live? You know, he said, many of the last shall be first. The first shall be last, you know, take up your cross and follow me. And Jesus gave up his power and his rights. It talks about that in Philippians 2, the way up is down. And as Harry, Henry now pointed out too, obviously, and I mentioned now in, uh, in my book, uh, I'm saying I'm taking these thoughts from now in here, but um, that Jesus said, the last shall be first, the first shall be last, the way up is down. Whoever wants to be the greatest in the kingdom will be the servant of all. And I was not seeing that from uh, even in the Catholic church with the abuse and cover up. So I, I wasn't seeing that on a wide scale from leaders. All I thought well, I was seeing, and maybe it's just my perspective, console, uh, consolidation of power and influence and crushing the very people that Jesus made a beeline to. Like, for example, immigrants, asylum seekers, African-Americans. I'm like, the way up is down. That That is not what we are putting into practice as a church. So my I hope to make a small contribution about showing like, this is how I think Jesus would live and it's going to require sacrifice. It requires sacrifice for me. Yeah. Yeah. When, how have you been required to, to really live this out recently? You, the book begins with, you know, the first few pages are so, I, I just felt with you. I, I felt you kind of pouring yourself out in the first, not every writer does that. So I'm not saying, you know, you above everybody, but there was such a, I felt that you were, you were ushering us in with an invitation just to step into the middle of your life for a little bit. How did that, how did that emptying process begin and how did it go for you as you were uh, stepping into writing this and as you were thinking about it and what, what were the, some of the things that you felt like you were emptying out of yourself as you put this out there? Well, I think about the Lord's prayer or, or where, not where Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. And then in the prayer, it says, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So um, uh, laying aside my will for God's will. Um, I don't remember if I write, it's funny. I don't think, I don't know if I talk about it explicitly here, but I just think about my husband and I, like we could take jobs that pay us a lot more money <laughs> than we are paid. Um, but I can't help myself but doing God's will. Like taking, it's not like I think it's wrong to have 
you know, have a certain paycheck, but to fulfill God's calling in my life, um, it requires that I be in certain spaces, um, you know, open doors for other people. Uh, it requires that I do certain things with my money instead of keeping it for myself. Uh, it requires that, you know, we have three daughters that we take them into consideration and talk about your communal aspect. I think cult, I mean, maybe it's ingrained in culture, but Jesus also took his mother into consideration right before he died. Right. He left her with the apostle John. He could not die without making sure his mother was taken care of. Jesus was not, um, you know, fiercely independent in any part of his life. Um, he depended on other people and in his death. And so in my own life, um, what I do, you know, what people say, times, talents, and money and influence, what do I do with all of that? Um, you know, uh, I, I feel kind of awkward talking about this, but instead of taking a speaking thing or whatever, you know, suggesting someone else that maybe doesn't have as much influence. Yeah. And people might say, well, you don't have as much, but I'm like, well, you could always look at the people behind you, you know, opening doors for people. I feel like it's very important and it doesn't matter. Like obviously uh, African-American Latino, but even like newer writers that don't have contacts that I have, no matter what ethnicity they are. Um, I, I want to give back to other people. If I've gone forward, I want to take people up with me. I don't want to take people down with me, but I want to take people up with me. And so, you know, uh, and even, you know, letting vengeance be God's and not mine. <laughs> That's the way I set aside my, uh, a really real way I set aside my uh, will because, um, you know, I don't want to take vengeance on people uh, for sure. injustices. So I think those are some of the ways that I, that I empty myself, you know, and I want to go this way and God wants me to go that way sometimes. And I'm like, Oh, it might take me a while to come around to what God has for me. Um, because I just would rather do other things, but, um, mm. God has other things for me. So that's some of the ways, um, where I have to set aside my rights. Yeah. And you bring into the book, you bring the wisdom of, um, the the fathers and mothers, mm-hmm. um, Saint Fortini. You quote you quoted Saint Macarius earlier from memory, which was pretty awesome. Um, you bring a lot of that ancient wisdom, and I I see in the desert fathers and mothers, and I see a lot of the understanding of how to release yourself. And you also bring into into the book practices, so prayer, fasting you know, some of the core practices, uh, how does the, so we, we've talked about a lot of what you're bringing up too, is you're critiquing the institution of the church prophetically, mm-hmm. which I hear in you and is necessary. There's also an individual, a personal side to how we practice these things. Uh, where does, where does this emptying come? How does this emptying play out in the everyday life of a person who say is not an author or doesn't have the ability to push up, um, maybe doesn't work in an area where platform is a big deal. Mm-hmm. How do you see, how do you see some of these emptying and filling things? How do they work out in the life of a person like that? Yeah. Thank you for that. So, you know, my child wants to do something. I don't want to do it if you have children, but maybe you don't have children and Dallas Willard talk about, talked about, um, not having to have the last word. If you're in an argument with a family member, a spouse, you know, not letting them have it. Um, controlling your anger, um, loving your enemies. You know, it could be, I've had to love my enemies in the church, at jobs in the church, and also other at work where people are at. Like if someone's trying to sabotage you or hurt you or is jealous or envious of you, like how do you approach that? I mean, how do you approach it? How do you love your enemy when someone's trying to sabotage you in your work environment or is talking bad and smack about you, maybe in your family? Um, uh, like, how do you navigate that? Well, you need wisdom. You need wisdom. Mm-hmm. But I mean, some of the ways that we might set our, like I mentioned earlier, is not taking vengeance, like not letting them have it on the phone, on social media, um, when you might have the ability to hurt them greatly, you know, um, you know, James, Jesus and James, you know, talk about, Jesus talks about it, but James talks about the tongue. It could light something on fire. 
and you could light your family, your friends, your environment on fire by what you say. Um, and so not having, you know, you don't have to be a writer to know that, um, you know, and, and saw in the Psalms, it talks about, is it Psalm 51? I'm not sure if it's Psalm 51, but like loving, Psalm 15 to loving from your heart, loving your neighbor from your heart is not enough just to not say that word uh, or uh, uh, retaliate against other people. It, your heart has to be changed towards them. And that takes work. It takes a lot of work. And, and, yeah. and so in those individual ways, when someone slights you, hurts you, or pushes your buttons, how do you react when you're angry? And how do you do things a healthy way? I'm not saying you stuff your anger, but how do you communicate without murdering someone with your words or in your heart? This, yeah. this is setting aside your rights. I mean, Jesus called Herod a fox. He's not, Jesus spoke the truth, but I noticed that all sorts of people were attracted to Jesus and all sorts of statuses in the society and all different ethnicities. He was able to speak in such a way where he spoke, spoke truthfully. We say the truth in love. And he was still able to communicate, you know, that's not right, or this is, but also without um, slandering or murdering people. And that's what God calls us to do. Yeah. We, we live uh, in a space, gosh, there's so much I want to talk to you about out of that. Um, we need another whole podcast. Um, there is so much I hear right now. Uh, about the idea of rights. And we're, it seems like sometimes we're very quick to talk about what is right, what is our right, and then, but not as quick to say, but is it wise or is it righteous? Um, where justice and righteousness are the same thing, our rights under a law sometimes are at odds with what is wise. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wonder as you... Talk about this emptying. How do we reckon with a culture that very much is, you know, leaning into, for example, so there is a practical example I've seen of this is a lot of, I saw some churches protesting that we need to meet because God has given us the right to gather as a church in the midst of this pandemic. And my first thought was, it is a right. Uh, it is, an, it's a right as an American, but it doesn't mean that it's wise as we start thinking about emptying ourselves, how do we balance that living in a culture that is very high on, and, and some of them, you know, civil rights especially, are incredibly important and, and often ignored, but how do we live in this culture of balancing what is wise and what is, what is our right from a perspective of emptying ourselves? How do we, how do we navigate that? Yeah, thank you. Um, and of course, I'm sure you have thoughts on that too, but... Um, <laughs> My, so in Philippians, it talk, talks about consider others above yourselves, you know, like consider other people. And I, and when I talk about that, I'm not saying, you know, let someone sexually or emotionally abuse you. That's not what I'm talking about. You get help. You know, if, if you, if people read my work and know who I am, they know that I wouldn't say, you know, go for that. Um, but um, when I'm talking about rights, when we're talking about the church opening, um, what does it mean to love our neighbors as ourselves? When I hear that, and I know this is not what I understand, people still need money to come into the churches so they can have the buildings or whatever tithing. But why would I know some do something that I intentionally that I know could hurt other people? You know, whether it's the elderly or the immunocompromised. I mean, that's where we have to curb our rights. It's inconvenient. You know, I, I want to hug people and see people and not have our rights curbed. But also, the way of Jesus transcends our laws and our politics. And sometimes we have to go countercultural to the church. And so uh, the church should be thinking about how to best um, care for the vulnerable and the hurting. And, um, but I just think that we're so used to having what we want. It could be have to do with wealth too, that we don't like to be inconvenienced for long, you know, and when you're poor 
or you don't have none, you know what it's like to go without for a long time, you know? I mean, it's mm. been kind of a fasting for us, hasn't it? Fasting from mm. fasting so that we could love other people, fasting from the presence of other people, right? Um, yeah. And it's not fun and it has its pains and, you know, no one likes it. I mean, I don't, I mean, to a certain extent, you know, but then you've had enough. And so, so I do think that we need to think about how we can love our other people. And I, I'm, I'm grieved with, with those that uh, just want more of their rights to gather than what Jesus says to consider people above yourselves and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, um, because it would hurt me if I brought a disease to someone else because I was being careless. Yeah. One of the most beautiful parts of your book, I think, is you have a chapter about our teachers hmm. and not like our public. Well, it could be our public school teachers, that, but the people who we allow to teach us things and how often we miss. We miss a, a beautiful lesson or a wisdom or an insight because. And we may not say this to ourselves or out loud because we don't think that person has anything to teach us. Talk about that a little bit. That it was I, because in the flow of the book I'm reading through it and I get to that chapter and I thought this is so good right where it is. Uh because we were talking about some things that I was I thought you would talk about and then we got to that and I said, "Oh, this is very fresh and very surprising to talk about who teaches us and how that is a how that is a way of our, our emptying ourselves. Talk a little bit about that chapter a little bit. What is it that, what is it that brought that out and, and really invited you to write and speak on it? Uh, put your voice into that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, thank you. I chapters, the chapter on prayer, chapter three, I think that's chapter four, our teachers and chapter five on seeing me to me, they were all one same thing. They're all yeah. the same thing, but I had to split them up into chapters and focus on, different areas of that. Sure. But um, I've learned so much, like where I said, my abuelita, third grade education. Um, she was also a lot darker than I am, uh, not the skin, but I'm just saying just, and so that would have her be more, um, she was discriminated against um, in many areas. And so like, who are the people that teach us? Um, so mm. like, do we have people do the poor teachers not to exploit them but do we sit at the feet of poor people i i wrote uh, something years ago for christianity today on what kind of people are on our boards it don't is it only wealthy people that can give us money are they the, did god only bestow wisdom on people that have hundreds of thousands of dollars to donate maybe a certain kind of wisdom mm -hmm. or maybe it's just a feature of where they're situated um yeah. but maybe both but who are the people that teach us? I, I, I like uh, St. Fotini or the woman at the well with Eastern Church calls her St. Fotini. You know, she went and told all the people in her town about Jesus. This woman who had many, um, you know, husbands or, or men that she lived with. Um, but Jesus, I mean, he didn't say, he didn't say, ah, you're a woman, you have a compromised life. Uh, you can't go tell anybody anything. <laughs> He, she went out and told, and he stayed there for a couple of days at their invitation. And there's like, not only, we don't only believe because of what you told us, because we've encountered Jesus ourselves, but who are we letting teach us? And I've found in my life, uh, I talk about the story of Lazarus and the rich man in that chapter, the rich man who is unnamed could have seen Lazarus as a gift from God, but he saw him as a pariah, as an irritant, as not the type of person that should be in his community. And I think he didn't, he ended up not seeing Lazarus until Lazarus died. And MLK talks about that. The only time, you know, the rich man calls on Lazarus is when he's in hell. <laughs> he's still trying to order Lazarus around. Um, wow. And so there are Lazaruses in our communities, the unseen. Like where do I, I, I'm very fascinated and I wrote about this in my first book, but like you notice that the trailer parks are covered up and put on the bad side of town or near the railroad tracks, or there's a trailer park, uh, my husband and I pointed out, right? <laughs> Butting up to high, uh, I-75 and Interstate 80 and 90, the worst place to have a place to live, right? Mm. Jesus made a beeline for the poor. He hung out with the poor. His mother was poor. And Jesus learned a lot 
from the people that were on the lowest rungs of that society because he was too his form he was formed in poverty and um and because it says he grew in wisdom and stature right i mean yes he did talk to the religious people in the temple but where did he spend most of his time right with joseph when he was growing up with mary with the community and so what i'm saying is allow people that we might originally think are beneath us for whatever reason it could be status money housing they have a lot to teach us and i think those are many of the last that are going to be first and many of us are going to be last you know because yeah. that we, like mary um you know sat at the feet of jesus learning from him we have to intentionally put ourselves in a posture to listen to people that are different or different statuses than we are because they have a lot to teach us yeah is there is there a story at front of mind for you that you've experienced where you've you've sat at the feet of someone like that and just from the work that you've done i'm sure there is is there is there something that comes to mind for you you drive out and see who the harvesters are the you know when you look at the strawberries you get the store who picked that you know what is the hand that is feeding you? I think of, you know, this older couple, he's 84. And I think she was like 76. They're from Guatemala. They're so, well, he worked a long time, but they live uh, in the inner city. And they're some of the most beautiful Christ-like people I know. He now has um, dementia. But I learned a lot about joy from them. Joy when they're like the most oppressed people, right? Um I think about uh, some of the inner city kids that I've interacted with, you know, people would call them thugs just based on how they look. I mean, that's what's the point is about all this racism, right? Like, I'm like, the people you call thugs, I see as human beings, I know about their lives. They're not thugs. They have hopes and dreams. And a lot of them think nothing can happen for them because life is, the cards are stacked against them. And so I try to put myself, not to exploit other people, but I try to put myself in places where I'm not always teach, like teaching and let me tell you how to do this or let me uh, explain this to you or this is what you've got to do. Just sit and listen and live with, um, you know, you have, I have to be intentional about it too because, um, you know, my life can separate me from stuff on the ground. Like you said, reading and writing and stuff. I have to be on the ground with the people like Jesus was, but not instructing, <laughs> listening, listening. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, what's the, I, I love everything. You've just been so helpful today. Thank you for, for your generosity and your honesty. It's, with the book, is there a gift that you hope people receive when they read this? What, what is it that you hope that they walk away with? I hope people will be refreshed by the way of Jesus. You know, people that have a suspicion that Jesus, you know, there's the Jesus being communicated by our broader culture. And again, I, I just want to be careful when I say this. I'm talking about the problems, but there's the, the most beautiful people I've seen also, you know, love Christ. You know, there's, like I said, in each of us, there's monsters <laughs> and, and beauty. So, so I, I don't want people out here saying, well, all you say, Marlene, is what's wrong. I think if you read my church you'll, or my book, you'll see I don't just highlight everything wrong with the church. But I want people to see that, like, Jesus is so much better and more beautiful than the American church is communicating. And I don't want people to distance themselves from Jesus because we are corrupting him as the church. I mean, mm -hmm. God is so much more beautiful, intelligent, creative. And, and I hope that my book, I can, people can make a small glimpse, like seeing that through the eyes of other people, maybe and seeing this, uh, the things that we just talked about, um, because especially some of the people that have suffered the most, like I'm telling you about asylum seekers who had their children separated from walks away from God and went toward but I've seen people that have gone through the worst hell still clinging to God. And I wonder why, you know, what is it? Um, they're still clinging to God amidst such suffering and are able to see beauty too and have gratitude. And I think that that's something that I can learn. So I hope that 
people are refreshed by Jesus <laughs> um, and have hope to keep going by the cloud of witnesses and they can be encouraged. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This conversation has been a gift. Thanks for your Thanks for your honesty and your strength and uh, the prophetic kind of work that you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. What a joy to be here. As I leave that interview, as I leave that conversation, my thought drifts to where's an area that I'm being challenged, especially in this moment when many of us are dealing with questions of justice, racial justice, political justice, economic justice. Where is one place where I'm being asked to let go of something in order to be formed to be more like Jesus, but also so that my life can be used, can be accessed? can be a tool that helps to bring about justice for those who may not have a voice or a representation. I want to challenge you with that as well. Where is, is there something you heard in Marlena's conversation that revealed an area where the Spirit of God is challenging you to empty yourself so that others might be filled, so that you might become the person you were meant to become? Marlena Graves is a writer. She's an adjunct professor. She has an MDiv from Northeastern Seminary in Rochester, New York, and she's a graduate of the Renovare Institute, the Spiritual Formation Institute. She's been a writer for Christianity Today, Encourage, WomenLeaders.com, and Our Daily Bread. She's also the author of a book called A Beautiful Disaster. She lives with her husband and three daughters in Toledo, Ohio. Her most recent book that we talked about is called The Way Up Is Down, Becoming Yourself, by forgetting yourself. You can find that in the links that I've provided in the show notes. If you're listening on iTunes, thank you. Please rate and review the show. If you're listening on Spotify or streaming via my website, thank you for that as well. I really appreciate you listening to this. If you listen weekly, if you listen just when you can, whenever it might be that you're catching up, uh, thank you so much for doing that. If you know someone who could use uh, the information and insights from this episode, please, please share this episode with them as soon as you can. And so, my friends, may you know that to empty ourselves is to be filled, that there is always enough, and that in the work of justice, it's time for us to begin to forget our own fears and presuppositions and preoccupations so that we might chase after the good that comes to others. Until next time, be well, live wisely. Peace, friends. Peace.